You'll have to come back on Sunday to see the end. There's good news coming. Great news coming on Sunday. But today it's Friday. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, today on Good Friday, we pause to remember your passion, what you willingly endured for us. Tune our hearts towards your great love for us that we would respond in turn and that we would say with sincere, sincerity of hearts, with everything that we have, we love you. and We thank you for your great gift of salvation. Bless this word, I pray. Speak through me, your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. Be forgiven and forgive. Romans 5 verses 7 and 8 says this. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. We've heard this saying so often we've become almost immune to it. Christ died for us. Of course he did. We've heard it probably many of us our entire lives. We've become almost glib about the statement, Christ died for us. But what exactly does this mean? What exactly does this all entail that Christ died for us? Well, it is in Luke's gospel where we discover specific details about Jesus' final hours that none of the other gospel writers record. Perhaps one of the reasons for these keen insights is that Luke was a physician by trade. He was a doctor of his day. And so as a doctor, as a physician, he may have had a keen eye for certain details that others may not have taken note of. For instance, of the four gospel writers, only Dr. Luke describes Jesus' sufferings in the original Greek as being agonia. Agonia, from which we derive our English word agony. This word agonia or agony was associated directly with crucifixion. It was not derived from some other form of, of suffering. It was derived from crucifixion. Agonia was the word coined to describe what a man, what a prisoner went through in the excruciating death by crucifixion. Another modern-day physician, one Dr. Naquin, has since summarized those gospel accounts of Jesus' agony, and I've added his modern diagnosis through the narrative to help us better understand all that Jesus endured for us on that fateful day that we simply summarize by saying, Jesus died for us. We know that following the Last Supper, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. There he, he poured out his distress to the Father, and he went through a deep spiritual struggle there in the Garden. Luke twenty two forty four says of it, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, while rare... This medical condition known as hematidrosis, hematidrosis results in the excretion of blood or blood pigment in the sweat. And so under conditions of great emotional distress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can rupture, thus mixing blood with perspiration. 
And this condition has been reported in extreme instances of stress or distress. And the loss of this blood and sweat would create the beginning stages of dehydration for Jesus. And so here we see Luke, the only one who describes this distress, this agonia, in such, such detail that he says his sweat became as great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke also records that it is at this exact moment that an angel of the Lord appeared and strengthened Jesus to continue on. We know that Jesus was then arrested. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. He then was taken away and faced a midnight trial. All of this against the law. All of it done in secrecy. And there, bound and tied, dragged before an illegal kangaroo court of sorts, in Luke 22, 63, it tells us that Jesus was then blindfolded. And the soldiers were then ordered to begin beating him. And as they beat him, they mocked him. Who struck you? He then faced a second trial with more illegal proceedings. Jesus would now have been utterly exhausted from lack of sleep, the physical abuse, the loss of fluids, not to mention the emotional distress that he had been through on this long and arduous night. The next morning, after being held potentially in a cellar, held there by ropes, He won't have slept very well, if at all, in those hours before twilight. And the next morning at dawn, he's taken away bound once more to Pontius Pilate. And there, in an attempt to appease the people, Pilate had Jesus scourged. Now, Roman law allowed a prisoner only to be scourged or flogged up to the point of death, but not further. So the saying of 40 lashes less one, so 39 lashes, that was the point of just before death. They knew that a man could only endure up to 41 or 42 lashes before dying, so they stopped short, mercifully, at 39. Well, in fact, there was no mercy in it. The only reason was they didn't want their prisoner dying before they said so. It was in their hands, and this was just a point of torture. And so he was flogged. And at this point, his pulse rate would have increased dramatically. His respiration would have been in in adrenaline mode. And the Roman whips that they used upon him would have small pieces of metal attached to the end of the long leather straps. And those little bits of metal would have gouged out pieces of bone and tissue along with the skin. Jesus' back would have been stripped into long ribbon-like segments, causing profound arterial bleeding. To add further insult and pain to this torture. The soldiers then seemingly of their own volition fashioned a crown of six inch long thorns which they then pressed deeply into his scalp. This would have caused additional blood loss which would have deepened his state of shock. A purple robe was then thrown across Jesus' shoulders and back. They may have inadvertently served as a temporary compressive dressing helping to somewhat congeal the blood pouring from his gaping wounds on his back. But the mockery continued throughout. As the soldiers spit upon him, beat him, struck him, and finally knelt before him in mockery, hailing him as king of the Jews. Pilate then proceeded to present Jesus to the crowd in this condition, wearing the purple robe and the crown of thorns upon his brow, And he presented them and just declared, here is the man. Here is the man. 
Medically speaking, Jesus at this point would have demonstrated cold, pale, sweaty skin. Lesser men would have fainted at this point, passed out from the shock of everything, and yet there Jesus stood. The mucous membranes would have been bluish and chiatonic. His countenance would have been haggard and drawn. His reflexes would have been depressed, his pulse pounding, his respiration shallow and barely perceptible. Pilate now succumbs to the pressure of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus is finally condemned to death by crucifixion. Pilate tries talking them out of it, but finally he infamously washes his hands of the man and hands them over to the crowd. Now the purple robe is stripped away, and this would have been similar to the careless ripping off of a surgical dressing upon wounds that have begun to clot. And this would have reopened the wounds, causing them to bleed freely once more. Jesus is then given the crossbeam, a piece of rough timber that could weigh up to 100 pounds, to carry upon his back up the hill to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Along the way, he reaches his physical breaking point, and finally he collapses under the weight. A man is enlisted, Simon of Cyrene, to help him carry it up the rest of the way. Luke 23, verse 33, then gives us a very brief statement about the crucifixion itself. Luke writes, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. They placed Jesus on the middle cross to signify that of the three men there to die that day, he was the one most worthy of death. The worst of criminals would always be put on display in the middle, at the center cross, and there Jesus was nailed. And now walking, now crawling, each step in agony to behold, we behold Jesus beaten to an inch of his life, his back in shreds, his face is disfigured, and we know from prophecy that they've also ripped out the beard, his beard by the roots. Upon his head is a crown of thorns, Blood is pouring down upon his brow. His eyes are marred. He can hardly see. The soldiers don't mind getting a person who's almost dead because now it means he's, he's limp and pliable. It means it makes their work as soldiers easier. There is no resistance when the arms are stretched out, the hammer is raised, and the construction-grade metal spike is now driven home through both wrists, cartilage, and into the cross. The other one threw his legs. Then with the ropes in place, they begin the work of hauling up the cross to the upright position. It finally drops into the hole with a thud, jarring every inch of Jesus' now mangled body. He no doubt experienced severe muscular pain in his upper extremities that only got worse as now his joints began to separate. He could draw air into his lungs, but could not easily exhale. As carbon dioxide accumulated, progressive degrees of asphyxiation would occur, and buildup of lactic acid would create violent muscle spasms throughout his body. Most cruel of all, in order to take a single breath, Jesus would have to push upwards on the nails in his feet, forcing up and down motion to simply open the passageway to continue to prolong his life one ragged breath at a time. And adding to that is that on his back, which has been ripped raw, is each push is rubbing him up and down upon rough timber of the cross itself. 
And through all of this, even still the escape of death coming now as a relief from all of the agony would not come quickly. The Romans made sure of it. They had done this to a horrific scientific extent. They knew what a man could endure and they took it right to the edge but no further. They would ensure that many more hours of agony in this position would continue on and be required before the end would come. And while hearing all of this, we may inwardly cringe or even flinch at these ghastly descriptions. My friends, it pales in comparison to the reality, the reality of the horror that Jesus endured in this entire process. And yet there, after enduring all of this already, while hanging upon that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, it was there that Jesus spoke the words that would have utterly shocked every last person that heard them spoken that day. And he spoke the words that still ring through time and through the ages right up until this very day. And the physician Luke is the one who records them for us. In Luke 23 verse 34, he tells us that there having been crucified upon the cross, the first words that he uttered were these, a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. Forgive them? Forgive them for what? Well, where to begin? What could Jesus possibly have been all forgiving them for in that one statement? For betraying and arresting him? For slandering him with false accusations? For chanting, crucify him over and over again when they could have yelled out, free him, he's done nothing wrong. For emitting bloodthirsty cheers as the Roman whips tore into his bare back. For further still spitting on him and mocking him. For finally being complicit and perhaps to the soldiers themselves for nailing him to a cross. For then as he hung there, continuing to hurl more insults and obscenities even as he died in agony. Did Jesus truly mean to forgive them for all of that? Or was there something even more? For consider, just who were Jesus' chief accusers? Well, it was his own people. We see that throughout the narrative. It was the Jews themselves. The Romans were simply the henchmen who, who carried through with their desires. It was not the Romans who were most at fault. It was the Jews, the people who Jesus had come for. God's chosen people. So just how, when Jesus prayed, they do not know what they are doing, and he's speaking about the Jews, how could they not know what they were doing? For didn't they have the Holy Scriptures and the prophets? Hadn't they been told many times over of what this Messiah would look like, what he would do, the signs? They had it all. They had God's promise. They had the information. They had all of the many signs that the Messiah would give and the, and the miracles that he would perform to prove that he was beyond a shadow of a doubt the Messiah, their king. But yet, even after Jesus, through three years of ministry, had fulfilled each and every sign, every last one to the letter, 
And they had seen the miracles. They had, they had eaten the food that he had miraculously produced on hillsides. They had seen people go in lame and walk out whole. They had seen lepers go from a colony to dancing in the streets healed. They had seen blind people who sat beside gates for, for generations and, and all of this they had seen with their own eyes. They had heard the teaching with their own ears and yet their hearts remained hard and disbelieving. And just as Jesus said of them many times over, they had ears but could not hear. They had eyes but could not see. And so their own Messiah stood before them. But they not only rejected him, but they hated him. They hated him enough to have him unjustly suffer and die by one of the most cruel methods ever devised by man. And yet even in the face of this demonically fueled hatred and evil, already suffering at the height of agony and beyond the limits of physical endurance, Jesus spoke those ten words that shook the very gates of hell and opened wide the gates of heaven when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. According to Roman historians, it was very common for those who were crucified to utter blasphemies and words of wrath towards those who were involved in the execution. Seneca, a contemporary of Jesus, recounts that those crucified would normally curse everyone, including their own mothers and fathers, for having borne them. The Roman philosopher Cicero writes that the executioners would sometimes even go so far as to cut off the tongues of the criminals so that the soldiers would not have to listen to their vindictive verbiage being spewed upon them. But listen to the Apostle Peter's perspective on how Jesus behaved in this exact same situation. 1 Peter 2.23, Peter writes, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You see, as he hung there, Jesus could have rightly prayed, Father, consume them. Father, wipe them out. Smite them down. Blot out even their memories from the earth. Cast them into hell at this very moment. Had Jesus prayed any of those prayers, would the Father not have heard them? Would the Father not have answered? Could the Father not have justly granted each and every one of those requests? Absolutely. All of this had been done to him unjustly. Every last one before him that day and around him in the world would have been justly deserving of such a request from the Lord upon the cross. But yet, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. Of this, G. Campbell Morgan writes, In the soul of Jesus there was no resentment, no anger, no lurking desire for punishment upon the men who were so maltreating him. Men have spoken in admiration of the mailed fist. When I hear Jesus thus pray, I know that the only place for the mailed fist is in hell. God willeth not the death of a sinner, but rather that all should turn to him 
and repent. God willeth not the death of a sinner, but that all should turn to him and repent. Yes, my friends, truly, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having now been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The wrath has been removed. If there was ever a moment for wrath, it was as Jesus hung upon that cross. But instead of issuing that wrath out on the deserving, Jesus, the undeserving, said, pour out the wrath on me, Father, I'll take it. And you instead, forgive them. Forgive them. A.J. Cronin, a doctor turned novelist, tells the true story of an American family with the last name of Adams. The Adams had two teenage daughters and a six-year-old son named Sammy. When World War II came, the family decided that they would do something to try to help out in some small way that they could. And so the family decided that there was a number of refugees coming in from Italy at this time. And there was this, this orphan boy from Italy named Paul Piotrinascal, it's a very long name to say, Paul Piotrinalsi, or something like that. No one could pronounce it properly, and they proceeded to do everything in their power to take in this orphan boy named Paul. They did everything they could to make him feel at home. But the boy responded quite negatively and showed no signs of gratitude whatsoever towards the family. He would hardly talk. He carried a chip on his shoulder. However, despite his attitude and his cold behavior towards Mr. and Mrs. Adams and the two teenage daughters, very quickly, Paul absolutely came to adore six-year-old Sammy. And soon, the two boys were always together, inseparable. And one day, Paul, against orders, went swimming in a nearby river. And unfortunately, that river had been contaminated by a factory. It was, it was contaminated with, with all sorts of, of unknown substances in it. Everyone knew, don't go swimming in this river. But yet, Paul went swimming. And subsequently, he came down with a serious septic infection that nearly killed him. Now, Dr. Cronin was the attending physician. And he quickly diagnosed that Paul's infection was far too contagious to allow anyone else to see him, as it posed a real great danger of spreading to the rest of the family. And so he had to be quarantined. And so in order to quarantine Paul, they made a special bedroom for him up in the attic. And there only the, nurse, the, the doctor and the nurse who wore special protective clothing were allowed to enter and to attend to him. However, one morning the father saw that the nurse had in fact fallen asleep outside the attic door. And so he had a hunch and he just decided he would peek inside to take a look and see if Paul was there. And he opened the door and he peeked inside and sure enough his hunch was correct. Paul was not there. He had taken the, the moment of the nurses falling asleep to sneak out of the room. Then on instinct, where could he be? He ran straight to Sammy's room. And sure enough, there he found Paul, sleeping in bed next to Sammy. 
his arms thrown over the boy's shoulders with his breath right next to his face. Now, Sammy had not been the strongest boy to begin with. He had his own health issues. And so, having been exposed to the infection, he very quickly came down with it as well. Sammy quickly became seriously ill. Dr. Cronin did everything possible for him. But poor Sammy's health quickly deteriorated further and further until at last he died. The family was devastated. And Dr. Cronin himself couldn't help but resent Paul for having disobeyed his direct orders and being the cause of Sammy's death. He further suspected that following the completely avoidable tragedy that the Adams family would likely not want anything more to do with this troublesome orphan who had caused their son's death and would send him away to an orphanage. A year passed, and Dr. Cronin returned to the Adams for their annual checkup. As he pulled up in front of their house, he was amazed to see Mr. Adams working in the garden alongside a spindly boy. He looked closer only to see that it was none other than that little Italian refugee boy. Overcome by a sense of bitter injustice, Dr. Cronin ran up to them and exclaimed to Mr. Adams, All I can say is, is, he's lucky, this Paul Piotro, whatever his wretched name is. But in response, Mr. Adams simply walked over to the boy put his arm around his shoulders, said with a quiet smile, you'll have no more trouble with his last name, Dr. Cronin, for you see he is Paul Adams now. We have adopted him. We have adopted him. I wonder if anything could come closer to being a true parable of what God, in the death of his son, has done for us. For in much the same way, we too were the cause of Jesus' death, the only begotten of the Father. For he was not infected by his own sins, but by our sins. It was not he who deserved to die, but us. And though we were the cause of God's only begotten Son to die, he did not condemn us, He did not send us away into outer darkness, but instead he wonderfully forgave us and further still adopted us. You'll have no more trouble with his last name. He's an Adams now. I love that. Have no more trouble with our name now. We're a Christian now. We bear the name of our Savior, Christ. We are God's children. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. And so we can be in his family forever. John 1 verses 11 to 13 says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So let me ask you on this Good Friday, have you believed the good news? Have you received Jesus? Have you believed in his name? Have you been forgiven, adopted, and reconciled to the Father as a beloved child of God? 
Well, if not, then today, Good Friday of April 2nd, 2021, is a very good day to take that step. Today can be the day where you can join a new family and receive a whole new name. So if you have not yet done that, why wait a moment longer? Because today you can receive God's forgiveness for every sin you've ever committed and be born again as a dearly loved child. And now for all of us who are here today and we're here today because we've already done that, because we are children and we know it, we must go one step further and ask the question, how now must a fully forgiven and adopted child of God behave and respond towards others? Can we now be as Christ upon the cross? Can we behave as our Savior and now freely forgive the wrongs others have done towards us? Can we now be as Christ and, and now claim this word that just as he has forgiven us, now forgive? Can we in turn be like him and forgive those who insult us hurt us, humiliate us, wrong us, or offend us in some way? Does, like Christ, our forgiveness reach out from our own cross and encircle those who have wronged us? Each hurt, each pain, each broken relationship, each moment of loneliness, each moment of sorrow, each moment of betrayal. The Lord's Prayer says, Father, forgive us our trespasses. But it doesn't stop there, does it? As we forgive those who trespass against us. The two are linked. The two are inseparable. The Apostle Paul took it further. Ephesians 4.32, he states, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ in God forgave you. In Colossians 3.13, Paul also admonished them and us, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In agony, upon the cross, Father, forgive them. It's the highest bar anyone could possibly imagine, and it now is the bar upon which our lives as adopted children are measured Forgive others in the same way that Christ has so freely and radically forgiven us. You see, my friends, for those of us who are forgiven by the wonderful grace of God, our ongoing forgiveness towards others is not optional. It is a command from the Lord himself. For if God has gone to such great lengths in order to forgive us the massive debt of all of our sin against him, how can we then not in turn forgive the relatively small and trivial sins of others towards us. Now make no mistake, this does not come easily or naturally to any one of us, myself included, because our old flesh still objects and resists to this. It still wants our, our pound of flesh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I want you to feel some of the hurt that you inflicted upon me and all of these things our flesh cries out for. But still we have a new master and a new spirit that can overcome the old flesh and put it to death so that we can live like Christ towards others. That as he called us through his spirit, we are now empowered to live a radical new way of life. One where we love our enemies. 
One where we pray for those who persecute us. One where we bless those who insult us. And one where we freely forgive all those who sin against us. Yes, this is a high calling. But it is the example that Christ has set for us. And he has now called us to follow. So the only question that remains for us is this. Will we, the children of God, the ones who bear his name, will we seek to be like Jesus, no matter what? One man who succeeded in doing just that was a man named Dirk Willemzoon. Dirk Willemzoon lived in Holland during the Reformation period, and he joined an Anabaptist church which rejected infant baptism, practiced adult believers' baptism, And for this crime and this crime alone, he was arrested, tried, and condemned to die by being burned at the stake. However, just before his execution, Dirk managed to escape from jail. He he tied together his bedsheets and escaped from the second store where his cell was, down to the ground, and he made a run for it. And on his break for it, there was a frozen lake before him with very thin ice, but he proceeded to cross, and the ice was just enough to hold him up. However, he was pursued. A guard had seen him escape and the guard was following him. And so this guard had heavy armor upon his shoulders. And as he stepped out upon the ice, though Dirk could go on ahead without the ice breaking, the guard began to hear the ice crack. And the further he went, the more it cracked until finally the ice broke and the guard plunged beneath the icy waters. Dirk was nearing the other side of the frozen lake by this point, and he heard the guard's desperate calls for help behind him. What would he do? Would he continue on and allow his enemy to drown in those icy waters? Or would he return to rescue him and so risk being recaptured in the process? And in that moment, what flashed across Dirk's mind were the words, the commands of Christ, Love your enemies. And so without hesitation, Dirk turned around. He ran back, he reached out his arm into the cold waters, he grabbed the guard and helped pull him back up to safety upon the ice. Now, having been rescued, coming onto shore, dripping wet, would the officer return the favor and allow Dirk to go? If it had just been him, he may have. However, another guard happened upon a commanding officer who said, remember your duty. And they arrested Dirk once more. They took him back to prison, and the sentence was carried out. On the 16th of May, 1569, the exact same officer, who, once more reminded of his oath to obey his king and country, was the very one who lit the fiery pyre that snuffed out the life of Dirk Willemzoon and transported him to glory. Now, was Dirk's gracious actions toward his captor done in vain? Well, to the world it would appear so, but not to our Lord. For just as Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross was not done in vain, neither was Dirk's sacrificial actions in order to save an enemy done in vain. For the account of his courageous actions and his radical love demonstrated towards even his enemy quickly spread far and wide. It caused many more to come to saving faith in Christ for salvation and inspired countless more to live out this radical love of Christ 
not just towards friends, but even towards one's enemies. And while we might say that Dirk's life was tragically cut short, God has seen fit that the story of Dirk Willemsoon's radical love and action is still being told just as it was this morning, some 452 years later. And while walking this pathway of radical love seems to the world to be an utter impossibility, it is because our Lord Jesus walked it first. He walked it first, step by agonizing step, up the path to Golgotha and the cross in agonia. He persevered. He showed the way. And it is now walking in his footsteps, stained with his crimson blood, that we are empowered to do the same. Step by step, day by day, year by year, we can and by the Spirit of Christ will follow in the footsteps of our Lord to follow his example, to be forgiven, and to forgive. And so my prayer for each one today is this. May you receive the forgiveness of God and may you in turn extend his forgiveness to others. May you know the pathway of Christ's radical love and may you walk in it day by day according to his grace, by his strength, and for his eternal glory. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come before you humbled once more, humbled by your sacrifice, humbled by your great love for us, that endured such agony, that endured such ridicule, that endured such hatred. From the very ones you came to save, you endured it all to the very last bitter drop, and you won the victory. Your words upon the cross of forgiveness ring out to this very day as a result. Father, forgive them. And that forgiveness has been bought and paid for by the very blood you shed in that day, in that hour. And so now today we may receive it as freely as you've extended it, that we can be forgiven. The very weight of all of our debt of sin can be taken away as we turn to you in simple humility and repentance and faith. And further still, though we deserve only damnation and wrath, you go further and you say, you are forgiven. And now become my child, be born again into my family, and bear my name. And so, Lord, today I pray for your grace to flow freely to those who have not yet received, to simply by faith turn to you and receive your salvation and become your child. And Father, further still, I pray for all of us who have already done so. It doesn't end there. That to be your child, you have now called us to be like your begotten to be like Christ in how we live in this world towards others. So freely you forgave and you have called us to now freely forgive. And so, Father, we pray simply for the obedient hearts and for the courage and the grace and the strength to do what you have called us to. That like Dirk Willemsoon, Lord, that we would truly make it our ambition, our life's aim, to follow the example of Christ 
no matter how extreme our circumstances, that we would love our enemies, not just in word, but in action. And that, Lord, that you would bless those efforts to whatever end, and that they would glorify you. For this is your plan for each one of us. And so, Father, as your children, we commit ourselves to that end. We love you. We thank you that we are your children. In Jesus' name, amen.